0: I mean, I think I learned the two basic lessons of journalism early. First of all, that you have to learn to earn people's trust. Otherwise, they won't talk to you and you will get nowhere. And the other thing is you have to learn how to write good journalism and how to get on with your fellow journalists. It, it is very much... A, you know, we, we all compete against each other, but at the same time, we do all become friends. And if you can't do that, you better not be in that profession.
1: This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the podcast, In the Right Direction. I'm Deb Elbaum, leadership and executive coach and host of the podcast, In the Right Direction. We explore strategies to help you think and communicate clearly and confidently so that you feel engaged and purposeful, both at work and in life. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm Trey, excited to bring you today's episode. I'm in conversation with Hella Henrietta Pick. Hella Pick. So, Hella is 93 years young, and she is a British Austrian journalist who spent 35 years reporting for the Guardian newspaper. She covered Washington, the United Nations, and all over Europe. I came to her first through a biography, a biography on Simon Wiesenthal entitled A Life in Search of Justice. So, this was published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in 1996. And I was recently revisiting my time in Europe. In 1990, I worked in Paris at the European headquarters of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. So, I was reading Simon Wiesenthal's biography recently. The author was Hella Pick. Then I saw that Hella recently published her own memoir entitled Invisible Walls, a journalist in search of her life. So a little bit more about Hella. She was born in Vienna. She came to the UK in 1939 on the Kindertransport during World War II. At the age of 17, she graduated London School of Economics. In 2000, she was awarded a CBE, a commander of the British Empire. She also received an honorary doctorate from Sussex University in 2018. So this woman is a pioneer. She is a visible voice. And from my perspective, she's perfect for a Visible Voices podcast episode. Let's get to the conversation. How would you describe your origin story?
0: Well, the story is uh, the origin is fairly brief, but obviously very crucial to my life. I was born in Vienna of Austrian parents. And I spent the first nine years of my life in Vienna as a conventional uh, young child. I've got photographs of myself romping around in parks in Vienna. Um, I have photographs of myself, a four year old tan brown body, being taught swimming at a swimming pool in Vienna, because uh, I decided I wanted to swim, and I'd actually been found at the bottom of the pool, um, and just in time. I went to school, I still have a book uh, that children had in those days, with drawings and congratulatory birthday wishes, and all sorts of nice stories written by my fellow uh, so pupils by by fellows, by friends. and then all of that changed at the age of nine when I was put into a kinder transport and which was to say that I was uh, t- was turned into a refugee from Austria and landed in Britain in London. Now of course, what I've not so far said is that during those first nine years of my life, the first eight years were perfectly normal. I was a middle came from a middle class family, had a perfectly normal childhood. and then everything changed on the day that the Nazis, that Hitler marched into Austria in 1938 and coming from a Jewish fa- family, we of course instantly became marked people outcasts from whom every, everything had to be taken and who were being persecuted and were in many the adults less the children uh, in fear of their lives of in fear of being sent to concentration camps which were just beginning to emerge in Germany, and where, of course, Jewish families did everything possible to try and emigrate and save themselves, and in, on so many cases where the parents were uncertain whether they could get any visas to go anywhere in the world they were trying to get to, uh, they at least had the possibility, some of them, to send their children in what I said earlier, in the transport the transport of children uh, to britain which had agreed to take um, up to about uh, well in the end it turned out to be 12000 children
1: do you believe that you were born a pioneer or you were made to be a pioneer because of these early life circumstances
0: Oh, I think it was. Uh, how do I know what I would have been like? <laughs> I can't. That I can't tell. But certainly, yes. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've always had a pretty good work ethic. I think, and a, and a pretty good play. I think. I mean, but uh, I've been blessed with a lot of energy throughout my life, and still to this day, I think, and um, and I've been healthy most of my life and uh, barring a few accidents but uh, and I have a pretty strong will and determination and I think all of that has helped me survive. (laughs) uh, I don't don't call myself a survivor because I I think uh, it's almost I'm a secondary survivor because in a way yes i I survived the Holocaust, but I didn't suffer personally physically from it
1: What would you highlight as your pioneering moments now that you reflect
0: i I've been doing a lot of reflecting, and it's I found it very difficult to give the answer to to the question. A lot of it I think just simply happened, and you know one thing led to another I think in retrospect uh I was extraordinarily fortunate in being plunged into journalism in a very oblique kind of way which happens to very few journalists which what happened was that I was looking for a job I had a job which I didn't particularly like I was looking for a new job answered an advertisement for something called a commercial editor of a magazine called West Africa which was a weekly magazine and to my surprise, I got it because in my previous work, I'd done some market research, quite a lot of market research on West Af- on the African, then still colon- British colonies and French colonies. So I at least knew the geography. I knew where West Africa was on the map. And I was suddenly, suddenly overnight became a journalist. And I literally had to learn on the hoof. And the lucky thing is, uh, it was a very small outfit. It had a brilliant editor who really enjoyed forming new journalists. I was not the only one in his little stable who made good afterwards. And by being sent out to, again, that was purely fortuitous, I spoke uh, fairly good French, and so he was keen for me to go to French West Africa to see what was going on there, because this magazine was writing at the time about focusing on the independence negotiations of these colonies. This was in the late 1950s, (laughs) it goes back a long way. And... uh, So there I suddenly found myself in in these French colonies and then also in the British colonies. And it was a completely new world for me. And, uh, you know, I just uh, took to it uh, like a fish to water. I mean, it, it was all very open and easy. There were... there was none of the security that you would encounter today. I could get to know all the African politicians who were involved in the negotiations. So I was on a steep learning curve. And of course, having to do this, and at the same time having to write, and write to the satisfaction of my very strict editor, um, I was learning... And I was making friends, and I was lucky in the sense that the the, there were a number of European journalists covering these affairs, but they were all men. I was the only European woman, I think. So you know, I had fun. (laughs) So I learned, and I had fun. But I think that taught me that you know you you have to be pushy, you have to, and you you also have to convince. I mean, I think I learned the two basic lessons of journalism early. First of all, that you have to learn to to earn people's trust. Otherwise, they won't talk to you and you, you will get nowhere. And the other thing is you have to learn how to write good journalism and how to get on with your fellow journalists it, it is very much, uh, you know, we, we all compete against each other, but at the same time, we do all become friends. And if you can't do that, you better not be in that profession.
1: You actually anticipated one of my questions, which was, how do you gain trust of people with whom you're speaking, people you are about to interview, to even have them agree to a meeting and that's part one of the question, and then part two, we'll talk to <laughs> you specifically about the writing. So, yeah, what, what what are the hella tricks of the
0: trade? Well, I think winning trust is well, first of all that you you try to be truthful and accurate, and you don't betray confidence. If if uh, people tell you things in confidence and say they don't wish to be quoted. Uh, you have to find ways of saying those things without actually uh, embarrassing them or putting them into a difficult position. And uh, uh, any, and you cannot become a good journalist if your contacts, the people whom you need in order to be able to write your stories, that they trust you, that, they won't, uh, that you won't give them away if they ask you not to betray their names or, or in any other way make it quite plain uh, what your source of information is. And, uh, I mean, that's that's something that, uh, you know, to a good journalist, just becomes a sort of self-evident thing to do. But not everybody does that.
1: How did you become a good writer? How did you work on your journalism?
0: I, th- I suppose, again, I have to say I learned it on the hoof. Um... I, I think I, I was I think my first editor was extremely helpful in really sort of showing me the basics of what was expected of me and what to do but I think uh, uh, the the person who helped me most was uh, a name that perhaps quite a number of Americans still remember uh, Alistair Cook who uh, was uh, at the time when I first got to know him, uh, the Guardian newspaper's um, bureau chief in the United States. And I'd just come to, uh, to New York to be the Guardian's uh, correspondent at the United Nations. And uh, he, he, he really showed me many of the tricks of the trade, though I think I could never have hoped to come anywhere close to his powers of description that he encapsulated every week in something called Letter from America which he did for many years for the British for the British Broadcasting Corporation for the BBC and which had a huge number of listeners always he was able to describe America in in a 15 minute talk uh, in a way that I think no one else has ever been able to match. And he, he taught me a lot about how to set about writing reasonably well.
1: <laughs> Did you see a difference even to this day? Do you appreciate a difference between men leaders and women leaders?
0: Well, of course, most of my time I was coming across the men, the men uh I was not. I never reported on British politics, so I never wrote much about Margaret Thatcher. And of course, she was a very forceful personality on on the international stage. But other than that, um, in my time of writing about politics, um, there were really very, very few women in power anywhere at the senior places. So. You know, I was coming across them at at ministerial level, and of course at the United Nations where there were some very senior women, but sadly, I think the vast majority of decision makers that I've met, I mean political decision makers that I've met during those long years of reporting for The Guardian, and before that in Africa, were all Amen. Uh, uh, it's, you know, it's, the landscape has changed comparatively recently, and there are still not that many of them. You know, this is the sad, sad thing. The name of the podcast is The Visible Voices,
1: and one set of questions I always ask my guests is, when did you first realize you had a voice? And when did you start using that voice? Because those time periods are often different.
0: Well, I think I realized I had a voice when I realized that uh, high-level contacts were prepared to talk to me (laughs) or with me. Uh, Whether I consciously decided that I had a voice that was capable of uh, contributing something to society or to the world we live in. I think that was all in the subconscious I, I, did, I did I did not I'm not a po- polemicist. I did not set out to convince to persuade people um, I think my aim had always been to show by example and by the way I was portraying the world that I was living in and working in uh, that that was a voice. If it's if it's if it's read, <laughs> if it's heard, because I did a lot of broadcasting as well, um, that's fine. But it it was not it was not a, an aim, a conscious aim. And
1: you and I met. Over Simon Wiesenthal, in so much as I read the biography you wrote of him, and then I found my way to you. And I was wondering if, for the audience, you could read um, a piece, a paragraph from your memoir where you talk about how that project came onto your
0: plate. Before I could work myself into a real depression, good fortune intervened. Uh, My old friend, George Weidenfeld, came calling. As a publisher, he had concluded it was high time to have a biography of Simon Wiesenthal, the prominent Nazi hunter who was based in Vienna. Would I be interested in it? Yes. I certainly would be interested. A great many biographers wait until their subject is no longer around to check up or question the authenticity of the author's product. But I had already been blooded with my abortive book on the Aga Khan. I wanted no repeat of that experience. Wiesenthal must undertake to give up all control over the book and its, con- and its content. George Weidenfeld supported me by writing a letter explaining to Wiesenthal that he would be allowed to see the finished typescript, Corre- and that he could correct facts and offer comments, but certainly would have to accept that my views and my interpretation were ultimately my own. George added that he felt very happy about the prospect of this uh, collaboration because, as he wrote to Wiesenthal, Heller is not only someone whose integrity and ability I esteem, but someone who approaches this task with enthusiasm and great admiration for your life's work. Unsolicited praise always feels good. I like this passage
1: so much because, um, again, it marks for me when you and I met, so to speak. But also, um, throughout your book, you talk about people that really championed you, people that were maybe a combination of mentor slash sponsor And it seems George... Wiedenfeld was one of those people. And I'm wondering if you can tell the audience a little bit more and then more about getting to know Simon Wiesenthal.
0: George Weidenfeld was Austrian by origin, uh, was older than I and came to England already as a um, late uh, teenager. Uh, he became one of England's prominent publishers, founded the firm of uh, Weidenfeld and Nicholson, which has published a great many important books and a great many bestsellers, and probably quite a lot of trash as well. But anyway, and they are now part of a much bigger conglomerate. Um, but uh, George Weidenfeld was uh, uh, a larger-than-life figure always. Uh, I always think of him as the, the first person, first Person to invent networking as a major feat. (laughs) He knew absolutely everybody throughout the world, as far as I can tell, (laughs) and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but certainly, both in Western Europe and in America, uh, he was uh, a figure that was pretty well known, and uh, he was a man of, of many ideas and because he was important to me for two reasons. I'd known him for a long time. Uh, First of all, because he, he really helped me hugely when I was superannuated from the Guardian after working there for over 35 years and suddenly felt really very bereft and fearful of how I would spend the rest of my life. And he rescued me by asking me First, to write the biography of Simon Wiesenthal, and I will come on to Simon Wiesenthal in a moment, and then afterwards uh, he brought me in to work with him on um, a think tank uh, that he founded called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and really opened up a whole new world for me. Uh, I learned how to be a good conference organizer as well as a good conference report writer. I met a great, many new people, very interesting people, hugely enlarged my circle of friends, and also it took me for the well, actually for the second time, but but this time properly to China for a number of times, and again opened up that world for me. Simon Wiesenthal, as you just heard, uh, I came to him because George Weidenfeld had asked me to write his biography. Um, I'd known about uh, Wiesenthal as a Nazi hunter, but I'd never actually written about him, even though I had done quite a lot of reporting about uh, uh, about Austrian politics and Austrian affairs in general. And... Uh, as I mentioned also in, in the book, I was a little fearful of writing about a living person who you know, was certainly moving towards the end of his life. He was in his 80s when I met him, and um, I was uncertain how it would work. I spent a great deal of time in, in Vienna talking with him, I also went with him when he went back for the first time in his life uh, since uh, since he was there in the the concentration camps back to to Poland. I had to go with him to the Auschwitz concentration camp, which was, for me, a terrible experience. And, uh, as I say, learned a great deal about him and of him and also and that was really so, why he was so important to me is he taught me, he brought me back to being more reconciled to the fact that I'm Jewish. He taught me how to be a secular Jew who could at the same time be very proud of uh, Jewish culture and, and the fact of being being a Jew, being part of a Jewish community. And, I have struggled all my life with the various identities which I, I think I have or don't have or would like to have and so on. And my Jewish identity had always been a big problem to me. Um, I can, you know, it's easy enough explained by my origins and by my experience as a transport child. And uh, having a mother who was an agnostic and never encouraged me to uh, come 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 to terms with being Jewish or indeed of learning much more about Jewish culture. So having this experience of practically living with Wiesenthal for uh, s- several months because I was spending so much time with him, uh, it taught me quite a lot about uh, being the ability to be proud of being Jewish but I got this even more strongly from George Weidenfeld when I started working with him because of course George and I were you know we we belonged to the same worlds. Uh, Wiesenthal was in a little world of his own uh, which uh, I could observe but it was in no sense part of me. I mean he was a an extraordinary loner, apart from anything else, with a few very good friends, but uh, he had no no life other than what he was doing. Uh, George, on the other hand, was a man of, of many parts <laughs> and uh, and and deeply cultivated and cultured, and had a. I mean, I always still think that his first loyalty was to Israel, and. He was extremely proud of being a Jew, deeply concerned about anti-Semitism and uh, campaign against fight anti-Semitism at every level that he could. But at the same time, he was a man of the world. And that appealed to to my character. And um, that's why I, I felt comfortable with his approach to being a good Jew.
1: In the book, you made a decision, it seems, to speak about the loves of your life, your romantic partners, um, and about some periods of feeling depressed, low, uh, even suicidal ideations. And can you expound upon your decision to include those aspects of your life?
0: I simply felt that if the book is going to sound reasonably interesting and not too dry. <laughs> I had to talk about my, my personal life a little bit as well. And um, if, if you like it, I hoped it would be a selling point. <laughs> I'm not sure whether it is. but and uh, you know, as I came to write it, I really also thought, uh, okay, I'm undressing myself in a way which uh, I never thought I would be able to undress myself. But at the same time, it taught me something about myself and uh, uh, not very good things, not very positive things. And uh, Looking at it from the outside, I'm extremely critical of the way I handled myself. But I... I just felt so uh, I had to say some, i mean i've I've not obviously not told as much as I could have told about all sorts of uh, uh events in my life, but I just felt the those that I selected the two I selected uh, were worth telling in a sense to reveal something more of my character
1: yeah. Did sharing those personal aspects of your life and your journey help with any sort of healing, resolution, liberation?
0: No. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) On the contrary, I think it made me realize even more the mistakes I'd made.
1: You speak a lot about the professionalism of journalism and the importance of maintaining that professionalism. And what do you see today in journalism that concerns you or makes you feel the need to emphasize professionalism in journalism?
0: Well, you know, journalism today is so totally different to the world of journalism that I lived in because I did most of my work without social media. <laughs> and, you know, it was... Uh, you. I was in a a completely different world. Uh, You didn't have any competition from the citizen journalists, and you had no competition from all the groups that formed themselves with misinformation and defamation. Uh, uh, You know, we we were, in a way, working in a very rarefied world where the outsider... Yes, where in any democracy you had politics and people were debating and proclaiming, but they weren't doing it all the time on the on the on 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 the media, where anybody is free to say almost anything they like, and we know very well now how difficult it is to control the social media. So journalism today has to compete against all those outside forces which we didn't have to do. But I think it makes it all the more important that if if the if the media are to survive, if the professional media are to survive, that they have to maintain their professionalism, their, that they have to re, retain a reputation for... Accuracy, accuracy for incisiveness, for the ability to analyse and to explain, and above all to be able to uh, be able to distinguish between facts and fiction, and facts and malice and deformation, de- deformation of of, of events which is a huge task. And, of course, financially, the situation has changed hugely too. The business model for professional media has changed and is changing all the time. I mean, my own old newspaper, The the Guardian, now survives simply by appealing to readers. I mean, they're they're behaving... as if they were a charity, and asking people to contribute money, uh, because the the revenues that come in from advertising uh, come nowhere near matching the uh, the financial requirements of, of running a professional news organisation. And here in Britain, uh, we're, the the BBC is bleeding at the moment, and is really uh, in, in great danger of, of being able to survive in, in the in, and maintain the reputation which it justifiably uh, has acquired. So I am fearful for, for the professional media but I think you know the, the number one principle is uh, you know remain remain professional. At your peril. Mm-hmm.
1: Your later chapters, your now chapters, um, can you share with the audience how you are spending your time, uh, which basically affords you a quite full calendar? <laughs>
0: well, one thing is I still refuse to retire. <laughs> That's the number one principle. Um well, I'm am doing I'm still doing a certain amount of work promoting this last book of mine, the, this recent book of mine, in, "Invisible Walls," and it's now just about it's at the moment being translated in, into German, and will be published in Austria in the autumn, and then also distributed in Germany. Uh, and my old, my old editor from The Guardian um, is now editing a um, monthly magazine called Prospect Magazine, which is the sort of the intellectuals left of center magazine now. And I've uh, written, uh, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of work, uh, again, doing some features, feature articles for, uh, for this magazine. And um, my agent is urging and pressing me to start on another book. (laughs) And uh, I'm still trying to make up my mind whether I really want to go ahead or not. But uh, knowing me, I'll I'll probably start it anyway.
1: (laughs) Are you able to share the focus of the book?
0: Um, It will be a biography, but, uh, well, the the book that uh, I've suggested and which my agent is rather keen is to write a book about someone that uh, very few people uh, would recognize the name Uh, this uh, is a a woman uh, a pioneering woman called Bertha von Suttner Uh, she was an Austrian aristocrat who lived um, who was born in in the mid 19th century uh, and um and survived until 5 weeks before the outbreak of the First World War. Why is she why is she interesting? First of all, she was the first woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, but she was also the woman who uh, persuaded Alfred Nobel to establish the Peace Prize, and she was in fact one of the earliest pioneers of either sex. Uh, to campaign for disarmament and became extreme, was eventually um, championed by uh, Carnegie in the United States. She toured America in her late 60s as a very portly woman, but she was quite remarkable in all her views including I mean she she wrote a great deal including believe it or not a bestseller which was a novel called lay down your arms which was even translated into English at the time and uh, she she was campaigning about giving women a proper status in society and a role and the ability to work way ahead of a most of the women's movements. I mean, she was really an extraordinary character, and um, and yet coming from an arch conservative. Uh, uh, of Habsburg aristocracy who remained conservative in all her other views except that she had this extraordinarily progressive attitude to disarmament and to women. And the tragedy of it is that she had been campaigning against rearmament and then died just before the First World War broke out. Anyhow, um, my agent, I have a very good agent Thinks that this is a book that could catch people's imagination today. Yeah,
1: a pioneering woman who wants to w- write about a pioneering woman. And um, as we bring our discussion to a close, Hella, you're 93. To what do you attribute your health and your crisp mind?
0: Probably luck and having worked all my life and being on my, I suppose, being. F- forced to survive <laughs> i'm a survivor
1: <laughs> the Risa wrap-up before i get to the Risa wrap-up here's a word about the podcast born in june raised in april hi my name is april dinwiddie and i host a podcast called born in june raised in april what adoption can teach the world As a transracially adopted person, I share insights and conversations with other folks in the community, and we deconstruct identity, relationships, and facing and embracing differences of race, culture, and class. The RISA wrap up. So, what can I say? Hella speaks for herself, and I am so pleased have so much gratitude that she said yes to joining me for this episode. I really am blown away by her life, by her story, and if you please pick up a copy of Invisible Walls, a journalist in search of her life by Hella Pick, you will see her honesty, her authenticity, how amazing it is, the world events that she covered. The independence of nations in Africa, such as Ghana and Nigeria, Watergate, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Selma, Alabama, and Martin Luther King, and so many other political events here in the United States. Read the book, listen to Hella, and as always, to be continued. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.